Hey, this is a really unusual episode of the Friday Chill Out podcast. We tried to do a regular episode with my co-host Tristan, who is usually the one who's leading this conversation, but he is in Ireland right now. And um, we tried to set up a special call from his weird internet connection in the middle of nowhere, but it didn't work. We spent about two and a half hours trying to troubleshoot both my side of the technology stack and his side of the technology stack, and it just didn't work. So I decided that I'm just going to do a solo episode. And since in the last Friday checkout, I talked about my experiences in Syria, and I got a lot of comments asking me to explain a little bit more about why I went to Syria and what I was doing there and what the situation was like there. But also at, and during the rest of my trip, I suppose, I thought I'd do a little bit of a travel experience, history, recap thingy. Uh, so I'll give you a whole overview of where we went, what we did, especially what technologies we've seen and how everything went for us on the journey. It was a really fun ride, so I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so the trip started by us going to Egypt, actually, for diving. So my girlfriend, Maya, and I, we both really, really like to dive, and we really, really like to dive in Egypt, because from Europe, it is kind of the closest we can go to like a top-tier diving destination that is, uh, it has, just has everything. You have like fantastic marine life, fantastic corals, really, really great wrecks, everything you could want, want and it's really close to get to. It's about four or five hours of flying and uh, kind of cheap as well. So we decided to go to Egypt this summer for some leisure activities. And I usually don't take any tech with me, specifically it's a tech detox for me. I don't want to be online. I don't want to have a camera with me. I don't want to have a laptop with me. I don't want to do anything because diving, especially the way we do it, we go on a boat. It's called a liveaboard experience. So we spend a whole week away from, I guess, quote unquote, civilization. And uh, we are somewhere in the middle of the, uh, at this time, the Red Sea. The boat typically has some kind of a Wi-Fi system. So there's a router with a little USB plug in it that has a SIM card connection. So, you know, when you're close enough to the coast, occasionally it gives you the illusion of having an internet connection, but it's just the most infuriating version of, you know, pages kind of loading, but then the content not loading, or you getting like an error message halfway through trying to do any processor. It just doesn't make sense. Just accept that this is a downtime, and there's actually a fabulous thing that uh, we usually go for like five to seven days. If you can take that much off completely from the internet, it is really refreshing for the brain, especially for somebody like me who's like hyper online all the time and whose job is to like constantly monitor every tweet and every, you know, news release and anything that comes out, it is really refreshing to do that. So, so I typically step away from technology completely, and then this is my like one uh, week or so a year when I get to like completely reboot and, and focus on something else. And diving is also really great because you have this activity. We do four dives a day, typically uh, morning, lunch, around lunch, and then afternoon, and then also a night dive uh, a day, every day. And that is enough stuff for you to constantly be tired and to constantly be busy and also not be bored because you go with the ship from one side to the net to the other, so you always have some variety during the day. Fantastic stuff. But this time, Maya convinced me that uh, there's this new dive computer from Huawei. So if you don't know, when you go diving, you need something called a dive computer. You could technically do calculations yourself on a table, but really 99 point whatever percent of divers use dive computers. These are usually wrist-worn devices uh, that... Uh, 
calculate how deep you are, how often you, you've dived, uh, what gases you've breathed for how long, and it gives you a clear indication on how, how much further you can go down, how quickly you can come up, and do all these different things safely. So it is uh, almost every diver has one uh, when they go diving, and uh, Huawei brought out a new dive computer that is very much reminiscent of Apple's Apple Watch Ultra, the Huawei version is called the Huawei Watch Ultimate, I want to say. And it is very clearly, they saw Apple bringing out the Apple Watch Ultra, which is a uh, it's a regular Apple Watch, but it is much more rugged. It has bigger battery and it can do some special things. For example, it can go uh, diving up to 40 meters. And Huawei made essentially, I don't want to say a copy of that because the product is not a copy, but they, they took that idea and they made their own version of that very clearly. So I thought, and, and you know, Huawei has been trying to get me to review this device for a while. So I thought, okay, uh, might be a good excuse to actually do just a, just a tiny bit of work while we're there, right? So I actually took the Huawei Watch Ultimate and the Apple Watch Ultra on this trip and uh, my camera, of course, and also an Insta360 One X3, which I have with a waterproof case. So we uh, actually did a bunch of shooting and I spent my whole week basically shooting and thinking about this video. Not the whole week, but uh, a significant portion of it. But anyway, it was really nice. And I really expected the Huawei watch to underwhelm me compared to the Apple watch. And the Apple watch I thought was a good product that the, the Apple watch review is already online. I've already put that up. Uh, the Huawei watch comparison with the Apple watch will come soon, come next coming days. <clears throat> but anyway, I expected the Huawei watch to kind of underwhelm me because it's like it's a me too product i thought and you know like i don't know how serious huawei is about all their devices these days anymore but i was really quite impressed so the huawei watch as a smartwatch is probably not as good a smartwatch as the apple watch like i don't think there's any like complete equivalent to the apple watch in terms of all the little things uh, it doesn't have a display that is as bright and as responsive uh, of course, the app, the companion app on the phone is not quite as nice and so on. So, you know, there's that. It's, a, it's not an Apple Watch. But in terms of the actual dive capabilities, which is the, the thing that we specifically focus on, I think it is a significantly better watch than the Apple Watch. So the Apple Watch needs a paid third-party subscription for diving to work. I've said in my video, I don't know if I said in my video, but I, my suspicion is that they don't want to take any responsibility for anyone <laughs> dying with an Apple Watch on, I think. They just want to have a third party to, to throw under the bus if that if that ever happens. Um, this is really weird for a, for a device that is uh, marketed as a dive computer out of the gate, uh, that you have to buy a third-party subscription that you have to keep active for the the duration of your dive and so on. Uh, the Huawei watch has this built in like any other workout type. You just press, you know, start workout and then you go, you, you can do a dive. Um, no paid subscription either. The Huawei watch is also way cheaper. You could, I guess you could kind of expect that from a Huawei device, but it is, I think, 749 euros here in Germany, whereas the Apple watch is uh, somewhere around thousand, maybe even more. Um, so it is cheaper and it is a better dive computer. So uh, the Apple watch only dives until 40 meters. That's the typical limit for recreational dives. Uh, beyond that, it is called a technical dive because beyond that, you have to take a lot of precautions. You might have to uh, use different gas mixes because just uh, breathing in that much as you go down, you breathe more and more gas. 
uh, because of the pressure. So you would breathe a lot of oxygen, a lot of nitrogen, and that starts to get harmful for your body and you can't come up as fast and so on. So you'd have to do like uh, new gas mixes. You have to bring in helium and so on. So that's called a technical dive. If you go past 40 meters, Apple Watch does not support that at all. Huawei Watch does support it. It actually works as a technical dive computer. You can do what's called the tri-mix. So you could add helium to your oxygen and nitrogen and so on. Um, it actually lets you go deeper as well. So there's more depth uh, to the, the dive computer. And um, the beyond the subscription, the other main problem that I had with the Apple Watch was battery life. So with the Apple Watch, you kind of... By the end of the day, if you if you dive a lot like us, if you do four dives a day, you kind of are a little bit tight on battery. Like you really don't want to go into a dive with like 10% or 20% battery remaining because like the thing literally has to save your life. So I think it's not worth the risk basically. Uh, but with the Apple Watch, by the end of four dives, you're down to about 20%. And that's on a brand new Apple Watch that is nothing else running during the day, that doesn't sync any notifications from my iPhone, that the battery has not degraded yet. You know, if, if you have this thing wrist-worn for like two or three years, which you'd want to have with a tool like this, like my dive computer is five years old and it's going just fine, then I think that start of that kind of battery life would start getting weird after like two, three dives a day, which is like a, a bit of a too tight of a margin for my, for me. The Huawei can do like easily double, almost triple. So just as a wrist-worn watch that doesn't do much syncing, but just like does health tracking, whatever, it lasts a week. Very impressive. Like it does like uh, heart rate monitoring and all the other stuff, one week. Then if you go diving like us, like crazy people, four dives a day, you go about, you have about 65 to 70% left at the end of the day. So you can do at least two days comfortably. And if you like really, really want to stretch it, you could probably do three. That is significantly better. So that is a, a significantly better experience overall. Anyway, so we shot this video. I was very impressed by the, the Huawei computer, uh, the Huawei watch. Um, again, not as good a smartwatch, but as a dive computer, it is cheaper. It does not need a subscription. It can do more. And uh, the UI and everything is just as good, if not better. So very impressed overall. Um, video coming very soon. Anyway, so that was the Egypt part of the trip. We spent a week on the boat. Uh, this was around Sharm, Sharm, el Sharm el Sheikh, which is the Sinai Peninsula. Um, so that's kind of between mainland Egypt that is in Africa and then the whole Israel, Jordan, uh, a part of the Middle East. So uh, after the diving, we went to Jordan uh, and the thinking, so originally the, the, the plan was to just come back after the Egypt trip, right? Because we typically fly in, we go straight to the boat, we do a week of diving complete re uh, relaxation, then fly straight back. It's a very fast in and out thing for us. Um, but this time, uh, my girlfriend Maya also happens to be Syrian, half Syrian at least, and she has still family in Syria. And uh, for a very long time, she, me, we've all not visited in, in the, the country for obvious reasons, um, but she hasn't been there since she was a small child. Let's put it this way. Uh, and the family has, uh, you know, it's been a long time coming that there should be a visit at some point, uh, would be nice to see them, but of course, difficult, difficult, difficult until recently, they started to say that eh, actually now the situation, at least where they are, they are in Damascus is starting to, uh, I wouldn't say it's normalizing, but it's starting to be not dangerous for a foreigner to be in, uh, so no physical harm, uh, 
danger imminent. <laughs> so we thought, okay, um, this might as well be as good an occasion to visit as any other. So we thought, we started to plan, how can we get from Egypt to Syria? And there was a whole mess with the visa. Syrians, as it turns out, are not the biggest fans of Hungarians, <laughs> as the foreign ministry has uh, uh, told us. They said that it will be as easy for me to get a Syrian visa, visa as it was for Syrians to immigrate into Hungary, which I guess is uh, uh, not, the, not the kindest uh, thoughts <laughs> in general. Um, but because of me being a plus one of my, uh, basically we got the visa um, and we got uh we started making plans for how to get into the country. And so we finally decided on going through Jordan because Jordan is between Egypt and uh, Syria geographically. Uh, you can't go to Israel because if you go to Israel, or at least you could theoretically because you'd hide it. But in these countries, if you've been to Israel and if your passport has a stamp from Israel, then they will not let you in and your, your visa will be canceled because they don't like each other. Um, so we thought uh, safest and most interesting will probably be to go through Jordan. Jordan, of course, has a couple of beautiful things to see. Uh, deserts. Uh, they shoot a lot of movies in Jordanian deserts. So John Wick 4 was shot there just now, apparently. Uh, they have a lot of these, like, looks like Arizona, basically. So a lot of, like, uh, you know, movies that are supposed to be on Mars and whatever, they're shot there. So we spent uh, some time in the desert. Again, complete radio silence, no 4G, no 5G, no nothing, no Wi-Fi, uh, and uh, a lot of solar panels, weirdly. Like in the middle of the desert, you have these like Bedouin uh, little communities that are, I suppose, mostly for the tourists, but still the main uh, power uh, uh, source of power is uh, solar panels and batteries. So uh, after that, we checked out Petra, uh, the the stone city, I don't know if that's the correct way to describe it, and then the Dead Sea, and then Amman, the capital of Jordan, and then we went on to Syria. Uh, we actually rented a car to drive around in Jordan because we had a really tight schedule, and uh, driving in Jordan is just fine. As a foreigner, it's uh, very easy, and uh, the country in general is quite easily laid out for tourists. So, um, dropped off the car, went to Syria, and... Um, quite a major shift from Jordan. Jordan was very foreign friendly and very like, they're, they're obviously big packaged tours and everything. And the whole country was laid out for that. I think in Syria, there were no foreigners at all and not even from neighboring countries really. Uh, so I would be, we're obviously in a family visit. So we had a very special situation. Um, it would be very difficult to get a visa without that to begin with. And a lot of people from the border checkpoints to everywhere else had a, a fun time trying to figure out how to deal with uh, a foreigner in general because they haven't had to deal with them in a long time, especially from not neighboring countries, I suppose. Um, we arrived in Damascus. The family lives in Damascus. We spent time with the family. Um, they're... I guess, relatively well off for the situation, but the situation is pretty dire. Uh, so the currency and the economy is in absolute ruins. Um, basically, imagine that before the 2011 uh, civil war, uh, you could get 40, I'm going to say 45 maybe, Syrian pounds for 
one US dollar. Now it's not about 9,000, 9,500, depending on when you take the exchange rate. There's a 200x devaluation of the Syrian currency compared to the US dollars. So basically any savings that you had as a Syrian in your own currency, completely gone. Um, the job situation is pretty dire. Most of the uh, working age men have left the country and are not really planning to return. Um, a lot of projects are on hold. Uh, there's no payments for them uh, and so on. So the situation, a very quick recap of the Syrian situation, Russia is uh, on the northwestern side. The Basically the sea towns of um, Syria are currently... I don't know what word you'd want to use for it, but let's just say occupied by Russia. It's They are friendly with the Syrian government, so in exchange for their, um, I guess, quote-unquote help uh, with beating down the rebellions, uh, they they are occupying those territories that include Syria's only major seaports, so they uh, control trade, I suppose. On the northern side, uh, Turkey is uh, in fights over some territories, and then on the eastern and northeastern side, the Kurds and the U.S. Uh, forces are still there as well. Um, those are the main the main difficulties, I suppose. Uh, nobody think the war is ongoing, but it is relatively positional. So there's been ceasefires, and uh, the, at least the front lines are not very active. Uh, so it's kind of a situation that's kind of frozen uh, somewhat. Uh, the Syrian uh, leadership has just started normalizing their relationships with their neighboring countries, at least. Uh, I think they just started opening diplomatic talks with Saudi Arabia. That was their big latest uh, move, if I remember correctly. Uh, but basically, even the neighboring countries decided that the atrocities that the government has committed against their own population were a little too spicy for their tastes. Uh, so even they threw them out of the um, their cooperation agreements and stopped diplomatic talks with them. But uh, I guess the the situation has been as it has been for long enough for them to say, okay, I guess we might as well start talking to each other. We're not just going to pretend like we don't see each other across the fence. So the there's some hope that at least some diplomatic relationships and some trade and some flow of things will start. But it it was the country was wild as it, like I have obviously I think most of us have never been in a country that is remotely as isolated as this country. You do not see international brands of anything. So you go into a supermarket, and obviously this is a dumb thing to focus on, but it's just, it, it is such a weird feeling. You go into a supermarket, and um, there isn't uh, food scarcity per se, because Syria is agriculturally self-sufficient. There's a, a, an economic problem, so some people can't afford the food, but the food exists in the country at least. Um, anyway, you go into a supermarket and there's basically a, a brand for everything that you can imagine f from, you know, cornflakes to uh, chocolate bars to uh, olive oil to to uh, all the same products that you'd imagine in a random Middle Eastern country, except none of them are from brands that you know. The, the products are almost identical. And they've made like their own version of everything because nothing imports or exports in and out of the country. Of course, there's a bunch of fakes of everything and so on. And some products, like for example, electronics and cars are not really recreated locally. But basically every basic commodity has been 
replaced by a local company. Uh, a lot of the businesses that are still there, for example, hotel chains that are still called what they were before, but the company pulled out. So the 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 company that owned the hotel chain or that operated the hotel chain pulled out. So it's still called that, but it's run by some local businessman or the Ministry of Tourism or whatever. Uh, you like I we have met a bunch of university students through family and friends, and I've asked them if they, there's any foreign exchange students, and they said that basically zero to the point that there's not even from neighboring countries in a lot of cases. And they said this funny story that there was this one random Brazilian girl a couple of years ago who was as an exchange student at one of the Syrian universities. And the, the entire university population was like, who who are you and why are you here? <laughs> so it's, it is really completely bizarre as a feeling that, that there's complete isolation. And, and um, it is also bizarre because Damascus has historically been like you can see in in a lot of influences that the city had that it has been a very internationally connected place uh obviously a lot of foreign rule has been there the french the ottomans the uh, this and that and that so uh, there's been a lot of exchange of powers there's still a lot of french signs on things and if you go to a museum some of the signs will be in french and so on um it has been a trading city for so long. You can see that, like ethnically, it is a quite a, a diverse. Uh, uh, at least Damascus is, uh, but actually the whole country is, is quite um, ethically diverse. Let's say, um, and so to, to see this bubble formed around it is is really, really, really bizarre. Um, everyone, and I and I mean, I, I actually mean this. Uh, everyone has been incredibly kind and nice to us. It was really, really quite touching. Like everyone was very, very happy to see us. Everyone was extremely nice to us. The country is is chaos. There's no no doubt about it. Uh, corruption everywhere. Like every, almost any official you meet, the default uh, expectation is that you start with a bribe. Um, but obviously, we had a special situation because we had family going around with us and so on. So I have no idea what it would be like without that. But um, we've had a weirdly fantastic experience, but also weirdly sad and like a lot of emotions going through us, I guess. Anyway, as soon as soon as we arrived, it just it really hit me. The solar panels that it was so weird. You had a lot of solar panels in Egypt already. Like weirdly, even infrastructure had solar panels. So you in Egypt, as you drive through the country, uh, it's really arid. So Egypt, uh, the Sinai Peninsula, at least like, almost like not even just not even shrubs or grasses. Basically, it's just like proper proper desert and stones and whatever. Um, so you have these in the middle of nowhere these like telephone poles um, that have major solar panel arrays next to them and they don't seem to be connected to the grid so i think the whole telephone infrastructure in the middle of nowhere is just powered by solar panels and perhaps batteries um but you saw this in jordan to some degree as well but i think jordan's economy and jordan's power system and everything is much more intact than that of uh the sinai peninsula which has seen quite a bit of uh, turmoil but also much more than than definitely than syria so their systems are a little bit more okay and a bit more centralized. So you don't need this much uh, solar on everything. But then Syria and uh, we after went to Lebanon as well. You just see solar panels on everything because the power grid just can't keep up. 
we said, uh, I said in the video that there's one hour of electricity every five hours. Um, and then everyone charges either from the grid, they have a bunch of batteries at home, everyone who can afford batteries, that is, of course. Uh, but everyone charges either from the grid during that one hour, or they have solar panels and they charge uh, uh, continuously. Uh, and then it's, you know, tiny little LED strips that consume as little power as possible, running off of uh, batteries. And then if you're lucky, you can power your fridge, but a lot of people can't. Um, the internet connectivity is on and off. Uh, it's really quite bizarre. Uh, I also explained that this weird system of uh, having customs on phones, 60% customs on phones, but the way that they enforce it is that, uh, because I suppose in a country where the government has not a particularly strong grasp uh, over its population, uh, taxation is complicated. So making sure that people actually pay their taxes uh, is is not an easy task. And so they, they uh, add these extra high taxes on things that they can enforce. And one of those things is phones because uh, the cellular connectivity is centralized. So basically what they say is if you want a SIM card, you have to get it from mm, essentially a state-run uh, network operator. And then that, that network operator can ask you to, uh, once you activate the SIM card, uh, or you put it in a new phone, they can ask you to pay a customs tax that is 60% of the phone value that you have. Uh, so again, people put the SIM cards into these cheap little second devices, and then they have a nicer phone for primarily being on Wi-Fi or whenever they uh, want to do that. So yeah, Syria was an absolutely weirdly fantastic and extremely heartwarming, but also extremely heartbreaking experience. Um, it was very nice to see the family. It was very sad to see the, the country in this state. Um, I really genuinely hope that they can somehow get on a better path, I suppose. Uh, this is not a, my place to really comment on the politics. Uh, if you want me to do that, this is just not not that medium. But um, yeah, so we went on to Lebanon then. Uh, Lebanon also has gone through a lot of turmoil, uh, perhaps less dramatic maybe than Syria, but still they also had a pretty uh, major impact on their economy and and also uh, revolt after revolt as well. I mean, just in, I think in March was the last time they had a revolt. Um, you can see uh, we were in Beirut. Beirut is a significantly better off city than Damascus was. Uh, there's not a whole lot of, in Damascus, parts of Damascus are completely uh, blown to rubble. Uh, so if you, we went through the south and it was just a wasteland, like uh, not not a single building standing, and um, really, really quite quite devastating. In in Beirut, the the situation is significantly better than that. Um, um, the infrastructure still stands, I suppose. There's there's fewer signs of uh, devastation and destruction, uh, but but there's a lot as well, and uh, some whole districts, especially, uh, I guess, as a response to the protests and stuff have been closed off. Um, also not an easy situation. The uh, country has essentially given up on having its own currency. Um, so you have the US dollar that uh, you pay for for large ticket items. 
for a lot of things at least, especially as a tourist, uh, you always get both currencies quoted. Uh, one US dollar is worth 100,000 uh, Lebanese pounds, I want to say. Lebanese lira, pounds, I don't know. Sorry for that. <laughs> um, and basically the way you pay as a tourist, at least, that's how we did it, um, is you have to pay in cash always. And uh, you pay the large amount in USD and then the last, uh, you know, a few dollars or whatever you pay or you get back in, in Lebanese currency. Um, the market for things in Lebanon is significantly more relaxed. So you have all the brands, you have uh, all the establishments, you have clearly a lot more variety in foods and and in like products in general. There's definitely also uh, a not particularly well-off part of the society that you can see if you go a little bit further from the tourist attractions and so on. But yeah, Lebanon was actually... The city of Beirut is actually has a really nice vibe as a tourist, again. Um, and we really enjoyed being there. We had really, really good food. I think probably my favorite food from all the, the countries that we visited. Um, seems a little bit more fine or high end i don't know how to say it like i think you can you can taste a little bit that um it is close both to turkish uh, cuisine a little bit more and also the french influence um i think it's a really really nice mix of of uh arabic and turkish and french and everything and it's uh, really really enjoyable um so yeah that was lebanon we were just there very briefly and then we came back to berlin and here we are uh, we had a an eSIM first time that I tried it, uh, in actually in Jordan, a really nice experience. You just uh, download an app. You, I think we paid five euros, and then we had internet for the whole country of Jordan. Um, really nice. You don't have to line up at the airport and get some weird SIM card that you have to throw away. Really nice. You can buy it in advance. And you just press a couple buttons, and then you have internet. So really nice. Uh, that's it for the summary for this uh, trip. I hope you enjoyed it. It's, it's kind of off topic, uh, but since Tristan isn't here and I didn't have anything else to talk about, and since people asked me about it, I thought I'd give you this summary. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll see you next Friday, I suppose. Bye.